Um, we are in our last week of this series here in Isaiah, where we've been now. This will be our, our third week and our last week. And really in this series and in this season, we've been asking God to send revival. We've been asking God for his presence to rain down for a very real and fresh outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Many of us have spent uh, this last week uh, fasting in some way, uh, different kinds of fasts. We've been fasting in some way, spending this week in, in prayer and in deep uh, spiritual cleansing, uh, dealing with some things in our life. Um, and we're doing that because we know that apart from the work of repentance, we can't experience the presence and power of God poured out into our life. And listen, that's the greatest need we have. We've said that each week. The greatest need you have as an individual and the greatest need that we have as a church is for the presence of God to pour out. Do you believe that? So listen, that's deeper than any other need you have. I know the bills are unpaid and the kids are crazy and you don't know how you're going to put them through school and the car's jacked up and what about rent? The greatest need you have in your life is for the power and the presence of God to be poured out and become real to you. And it's the greatest need that we have as a church. And recognizing that as the greatest need makes prayer and repentance absolutely essential. Listen, if the greatest need we have is revival, then the most urgent work that we need to be doing is the work of prayer and uh, repentance. And so that's kind of where we've been uh, for the last few weeks and certainly where we've been in this last week, and I want to invite you uh, to come back tonight at 5, because tonight at 5 o'clock, we're going to break our fast together if you've been doing that, and we're going to worship, and we're going to pray. We're going to take communion together, and this will take the place of our normal Wednesday night gathering. This coming Wednesday, we're going to do it tonight, and so I just want to invite you to come back, pray with us, worship with us as we continue to just seek the presence of God and really pray for Him to do some uh, powerful things on Easter Sunday. And so um, that's where we've been. And so what I want to do this morning um, is really I want to answer two questions. The first question is, why do we need to pray for revival? Why, are we, <laughs> why have we been ringing this bell for three weeks, right? Why do we need to pray for revival? And what, where does true revival praying come from? Where does it come from? Why do we need to pray like this? And where does the motivation and the urgency to pray for this come from. We've been preaching this call to prayer for revival really for over a year now. When we started praying last January the 13th of 2021, that very first prayer gathering that Wednesday night, one of the things that was there and has been there essentially every week since is the prayer for revival. The prayer for God's presence to pour out in power. It's a drum that we continue to beat here at New Beginnings. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to answer those questions. Why do we need to pray this way? Where does that revival praying come from? And I want to bridge the gap between um, why we or what we're preaching about revival and why it is that we continue to preach it. And so I, I, I hope we bring some clarity. And really, I think we get that clarity from Isaiah chapter 64, where we've been for the last several weeks. If you want to grab your Bible and go there, Isaiah chapter 64, what we find is Isaiah praying for revival. He is praying that God would move in power. And I want us to 
This is a short little chapter. It's, it's only 12 uh, verses. And so I want us to read the whole thing. We're going to read the first nine verses. We'll spend uh, most of our time in the last three verses. But I want you to hear the heart of the prophet of God praying for revival. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. Revival is always God coming down. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. And in our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. Now we're going to sense this shift in this prayer. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. So be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Isaiah is crying out for revival, right? He is begging God to move in power, pour out on us. And as he prays for revival, he is remembering and basing his prayer on the character of God. Isaiah doesn't come with this prayer based on who he is, but on who God is. And he calls out to God as their maker, we're the clay. You're the potter. We're the work of your hand. You're not the work of our hand. We're the work of your hand. All these other nations, their gods are the work of their hands. What sets us apart is we're the work of your hands. We are the clay yielded. You are the one who, you're the maker. You're the, you're the potter. He cries out to him as father, Lord, we are all your people. We are all your people. He cries out to God as their redeemer. Shall we be saved? Will you save us? Remember not our iniquities. Do not be angry with us forever. It's crying out as a redeemer. And when we get to the end of that chapter, we really begin to see the heart behind Isaiah's prayer for revival and why it is that he is pleading with God for a fresh visitation of his presence and power. I want us to see what fuels this prayer for revival. Look at verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. 
and all our pleasant places have become ruins? Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? I say, do you hear the pleading in that? He's saying, God, come down. God, forgive us. God, intervene. God, move for us. There's a part of this where you just feel in Isaiah the stirring where he's saying, God, where are you? You ever had one of those moments? You ever had that moment in your life? Come to this crisis and all you knew how to do was yell out, God, where are you? This seems like it is ruined. Where are you? That's where Isaiah is. He sees this spiritual ruin and he is crying out for God to intervene. That's what we see in these verses. And these last three verses, I think, really unlock the heart of revival prayer and what fuels it. So what I want to do is I want to just give us a summary statement and then we'll spend the morning unpacking it. It's a little summary statement, really just two big ideas today. Here's the statement that I want you to see first. Pleading for revival starts with a recognition of the absence of God's presence and power. This recognition leads to a desperation for God's presence and power to return. So I'm just going to leave that up for a moment. If you want to write that down or maybe take a picture of it. Pleading for revival starts with a recognition, an awareness of the absence of God's presence. There is something we should have that we don't have. There's a recognition of the absence of God's presence and power. And then this recognition leads to a desperation for God's presence and power to return. So we're going to unpack this. Here's the first big idea. True revival praying, pleading for revival, begins with a recognition of the absence of God's presence and power. That's where it begins. Look just very quickly at verse 10 and 11 again. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house. He's talking about the temple now. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. Isaiah is looking at the the physical ruins of Jerusalem that are a reflection and, and they are an accurate picture of the spiritual ruins of the people. But I want you to understand this. These aren't just metaphorical ruins. This isn't metaphorical destruction. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed and the temple of God has been burned to the ground. This isn't metaphorical only. It is a reflection. It's a picture, but he's standing in the rubble. He's looking out on Jerusalem that had been destroyed. And so I want you to remember the importance, why there's weight in these words, and remember the importance of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem. Right? The temple was the apex. It was the peak of their covenant with God. Zion, Jerusalem, this was called the city of God. This was the place where God's manifest presence would dwell. This is the place where in 1 Kings 9, God said, I'm going to put my name there and it will dwell there forever. That's this place. That's this temple. That's this city. It was meant, it was, it was, it was that, that his name dwelled there, that his presence was there, was the, um, 
gave, what is what gave the people their covenant distinction. It's what set them apart. The temple of God, that his presence dwelled there and that his name was there, was meant to be for the people, in essence, uh, the, an Eden between Edens. Let me explain that for a moment. The first Garden of Eden, what was it? It's the perfect place where God dwelled in perfect unity with his people, with man, right? God dwelled in perfect relationship with man. But man sinned. He was put out of the presence of God. But in that, God made a promise that a new garden would come. He would put the Redeemer. He would crush the head of the serpent. He would restore that uh, perfect relationship and dwelling again with man. But between that second garden, God gave the temple, that Eden between Edens, where man and God could dwell, where his presence would be and and man could meet with him. It gave them their distinction. This is where his name dwelled. And now, now it's in ruins. It's, it's in ruins. It's destroyed. The city is in rubble, and Isaiah is devastated. He's devastated. That's why he says a few verses before, Isaiah 64 and Isaiah 63 around verse 18. Now remember, Isaiah 63 and 64 are one prayer. It's, he's praying one prayer through here. Um, In Isaiah 63, verse 18, in the same prayer, he says this, Your holy people held possession for a little while, but our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. And we have become, listen to this verse, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Isaiah is saying, we've become like those people and like those nations that do not know you and have never known you and will never know you. That's what we've become. In essence, he's saying, God, it's as if we've never even belonged to you at all because your presence and your power has been removed. I want you to imagine what Isaiah is feeling here. And it's important that we take enough time to get captured by this because it's easy to miss the impact that this very temple had in Isaiah's life and in his calling when God called him as a as a prophet earlier in Isaiah we get a glimpse of the most significant moment in the life of Isaiah we get it in Isaiah chapter 6 probably some of the most famous verses in all of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 we get a glimpse into the most significant moment of his life. And here's what it says in verse 1. Isaiah said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This temple, that's where he saw the Lord. Isaiah didn't get, it wasn't where he got a good little uh, warm feeling in worship. It's where his eyes saw the Lord. It's where God peeled back the curtain for just a moment and let a mortal man look on eternity and see the Lord and see heavenly. This is where God gave him that vision and now he stands in the ruins of that place. 
Can you imagine the heartbreak? This moment. This was the moment where he saw the glory and the power and the majesty of God, and it had transformed him. You know, I grew up in the same little country church all of, all of my years and, until I graduated high school and went to college, First Baptist Church, Kaysen. And that was the church where I met Jesus and made him the Lord of my life. It's the church where I learned about who he was and who God was and his word was spoken and I learned how to worship him and sing to him. It's where I was called to ministry. It's where Carrie and I got married. And several years back, it, it, the, the building was just one of these old, old buildings and it was dilapidated and floors were rotting in places. It was obvious they needed to build a new building. And so what they did was they took that old building and they just moved it onto an empty lot. And then they built the new building uh, right in that same area. And every time I would drive by that, and it sat for years, this empty building sat empty, decayed, falling apart on a lot. Every time I would drive by it, it would hurt. Richard, I would feel it right here because I was driving by a building that was falling apart where I had met Jesus. I've made Jesus the Lord of my life in that rundown thing. I learned how to sing his name, read his word, hear his voice, was called to ministry, married my wife, all in Now, in a deeper, deeper way, Isaiah had had a vision of the Lord. God let him see the Lord. And now he's standing in the ruins of that. So there's this, he's standing in this physical devastation that is revealing the spiritual destruction that sin had caused. It's important to remember the people of God were in this place because of their sin. Here he is standing in this physical devastation and it's revealing the spiritual destruction that sin has caused. And church, I want you to lean in with me for a moment. We must recognize the very real spiritual ruin of the church today. Listen, I'm not just talking about new beginnings. I'm talking about the church, big C. We've said for the last few weeks, the church in America is in decline. It is in decline. More churches are closing their doors than are being planted and raised up. More people are walking away from the faith than are being converted and born again, right? The church is in decline in uh, America. And yet, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, listen, we are now the covenant people of God. That's who we are. We're the, we are the place where he has put his name. Amen? We are the place where Christ has given, in Christ, we have become the dwelling place of God. That's what you see happen in Acts chapter 2. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on them. The Holy Spirit fills them. God comes to dwell in them, and the church is born. And now we are to be the people of God, filled with the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, living lives that display the glory of Jesus. His name now dwells with us. Which means when we look around and see the church declining, we have to honestly recognize the spiritual ruin. We're called to live these lives that show and share the gospel. Lives that push back the darkness. 
because of the Holy Spirit is indwelling in us, gathering together every week to worship, gathering to pray, gathering to meet with God, to encounter God, and to be filled with God. Listen, when we pray for revival, it isn't just a work we're praying that God would do at New Beginnings. We're asking God to pour out His presence on this nation. To, fill the, to cause His Holy Spirit to fill every church. I, I want to liberate us this morning because I, I have to liberate myself a little <laughs> from some of these thoughts. But I want to liberate us this morning from the thoughts of Boy, if we could just get prayer back in school, it'll be all right. Prayer leaving school had nothing to do with culture and everything to do with the church not walking in purity and power and the supernatural presence of God. The decline of the culture is not what's causing the decline of the church. It's the decline of the church causing the decline of the culture. And until we see nothing outside of us is going to restore itself apart from God pouring out in us and pouring out through us. That's the only hope this nation has, which is why the people where the name of God dwells, where he's poured himself out, we must recognize where we are because we're the only hope. We are God's plan A. He didn't didn't build a backup plan if his people stopped caring about the spiritual devastation in their culture. He's given us his name and his gospel and his presence so that we can be the ones who pour out what is poured in and see our culture and our communities transformed. Because here's what you see throughout the scriptures. And even really throughout church history, you see that whenever the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, whenever revival comes, when there's this pouring out of the Holy Spirit, you're going to see some things. You're going to see sinners that are radically saved, converted. You're going to see people being converted. You're going to see disciples being made. Not not fans of Jesus, but followers of Jesus. Those are going to be made. This is evidence of revival pouring out. Sinners converted, disciples being made, the church praying together regularly, the Sunday gatherings become supernatural events. That's what happens when revival begins to pour out. We begin to see supernatural power. People are healed. The gospel is preached. Cultures and communities are transformed. Marriages are restored. Unity is enjoyed. Worship is authentic. Jesus is the hero, and we sit in the presence of God. That's what happens when revival begins to stir and move. So the question I'm asking myself and the question I need us to wrestle with together is this. Is that what we are seeing? You go, well, we see some great things. I see those great things too. We baptized two in the eight o'clock service and that is a 100% a miracle and an evidence of God's power on display. Salvation is a miracle. Every one of them, without exception. A miracle because without God moving, they don't happen. 
right? So we do see that God does things and he moves in power. The question is, are we seeing it transform a nation? Are we seeing it transform a community? Are you seeing marriages being restored, people being set free from sin and addiction? Are you seeing children that wandered coming home? Are you seeing unity that is raised up and enjoyed? Are you seeing worship that is authentic and filled with passion and glory? Are we seeing these things? It's a question we've got to wrestle with. Are we seeing the move of God in our lives, in our families, in our church? Individually and corporately, there are some evidences that we want to recognize. We've got to see them. This pleading begins with a recognition. Um, we see people who have just become comfortable. And listen, I am the chief among them who have simply become comfortable living a life without the supernatural power of God at work in me. Can we just sit with that for a minute? And I want everybody in this room to hold up a mirror to your soul and ask the question, have I built a life that is comfortable without the power of God's presence working in me? I've actually gotten comfortable with it. I've learned how to live a life that I'm just fine with if God's presence is not there. Just ask, right? Just, but if we, if we recognize that, that recognition ought to start to, oh wait, that's a, that's a symptom of a problem. It's a symptom of a, of a problem, right? The posture of our lives often just look like the posture of the world. We just look like culture. We see people who, who, who see the connection with God's people as, as optional. They see gathering and worship as a burden. Uh, they, and I, we attend often without ever considering the thought that we've come to meet with the true and living God, with God's people. So church members are present but is the Holy Spirit present. And listen, I, know, I want you to hear me. This isn't about guilt or shame. This isn't about, woe is me, I'm a horrible human. It's not, it's not about that. This is about seeing things as they really are. This week of fasting has not, about been, has not been about me coming to the end and go, well, Darby, you're just a terrible human. Pack it up and give up. No, it's about trying to get honest and recognize where things really are. You know, for years in uh, high school and in college, I worked for uh, hardware stores. I worked for True Value hardware stores. And when I, the, the longer story is, before I worked at a hardware store in, uh, the hardware store in Dangerfield, I worked at a, a restaurant right across the street, and I lasted, Lynn, a grand total of, of two months. And uh, then I realized, I got to get out of here. I'm going to murder, right? I can't do it. I, if you've ever worked in the food service industry, I want to tell you something. I love you, and you're bad to the bone. If you, if you were able to do that for a season, way to go. You are a champion. I could not do it. And so two months in, I was like, I got to quit. I walked across the street, got a job at True Value Hardware Store, and immediately they said, <laughs> you're now the manager of the paint department. And I was like, really? That feels good at 17. What's paint? Right? I don't know what to do. I've never, I'd never mixed it. I'd never sold it. I didn't know how to do anything with paint. They just went, hey, here you go. Here's a book. 
make money. And I was like, all right, great. So I became the manager of the paint department. Um, and through those years, I did the exact same thing at the one when I was in college and then painted houses in graduate school. So through those years, here's what I discovered. I was shocked at how many shades of white exist on planet Earth. Right? If you walk into a store and you say, I need a can of white paint, they're going to look at you and go, do you realize there's 150,000 shades of white? I didn't just pull that number. That's a real thing. There are over 150,000 shades of white. If you take any of those shades and take them apart and hold them up by themselves, what color are you convinced you're holding? Convinced, I'm holding white, this is white color. Every shade of white looks like the real shade of white until it is held up. There's one color that they call pure white. Until you take that shade and you hold it against pure white. And when I would hold it against pure white, it would become very clear, this is not white at all. Oh, it looks good on its own, it looks white, but when I hold it against pure white, all of a sudden I see it's not, I see all the different colors that are in there. This season we're in of, of repentance, the recognition of our sin and God's, this isn't about beating ourselves up, it isn't about trying to do better, it's about holding ourselves up to the pure holiness of God and recognizing where we are and what our sin has created. That's what it is. So I want you to hear me. Pleading for revival starts with a recognition, the absence of God's presence and power. And it leads to, and here's the second idea, it leads to a desperation for God's presence and power to return. It leads to a desperation for God's presence and power to return. Isaiah's response to this recognition of, of the spiritual ruins of Israel wasn't just, we're terrible people and we got to do better. No, it, it sparked a desperation for God to move, for God to do what they could not do for themselves. Listen, revival is not about our effort or anything we can do. Revival is about the rescue of God of a desperate people. That's what it is. Revival is about rescue. And this morning, if you don't sense the need to be rescued, you need revival. And if you know you need to be rescued, you're ready for revival. Rescued from my effort, rescued from my own best effort at trying to love well, lead well, have patience, do all the things, just live out the fruits of the Spirit, all of my effort to love God and love His people, all of that best effort, and I constantly feel defeated. It's because it isn't about what I do, it's about what God can do coming down to rescue me. That's revival. And I want to tell you, there is so much liberation and joy and freedom for you when you realize your walk with Jesus is not fulfilled in how hard you try, but in how much you trust. Amen. Your 
life as a believer finds the deepest satisfaction, not in how hard you work, but in how desperately you just say, God, come rescue me. Come get me. Come grab me. I see what my sin has done. I recognize it. And the harder I work to fix it, the more devastation I cause. Come rescue me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God. That's revival. And I'm asking us to earnestly dwell with the idea, do we, are we desperate for that? Are we comfortable or are we desperate? That's where. Look at what he says in verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things? Remember he said, the the temple's burned, the city's destroyed, this place is in ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Listen, that kind of question... This is not an indictment on God. This is a prayer of desperation for God to intervene. In essence, Isaiah is saying, you are our only hope. Without you stepping in, there is no hope. God, you can't keep silent. Please don't keep silent. The very heart of pleading for revival is desperation. It is coming to the end of ourselves and calling on the Lord to step in and pour out and usher in and come down with his presence and his power. Isn't that what Jesus called us to do the entire time that he was on earth? (laughs) Jesus' entire ministry was revealing our, our ruined spiritual condition and our desperate need for a Savior. The whole thing, that's what it was. You remember when he came out of the wilderness, goes into the wilderness, fasted, tempted for 40 days, comes out of the wilderness, starts his ministry. Do you remember the first sermon he preached? It's a real short sermon. You probably wish this one was. Too bad, right? (laughs) What was the first sermon Jesus preached? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was, a rec- it was trying to help recognize we are in spiritual ruins and we should be desperate for God to move. This is what he did. And in coming to the end of ourselves and emptying ourselves and coming to God in holy desperation, that's what we can see as grace and his power displayed in our life. And this revived life, what Jesus would call the abundant life in God's presence and power is what Jesus was pointing to and calling us to and inviting us into when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. How is it that we experience the divine life, the revived life, the revived life? How do we experience the kingdom of God and the comfort of God and the satisfaction of God? It is in revival. It is in the very real outpouring of God's presence and power. And this is what we need, church. We need to get a glimpse of Jesus. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. 
We need to get a glimpse of Jesus in this glory. And that leads us to a recognition of the absence of his presence and power in our life and a desperation for that presence to return. Because listen, when we get revival, when we get revival, Spiritual poverty becomes kingdom prosperity. When we get revival, our mourning becomes God's comfort. When we get revival, the meekness and the humility becomes inheriting the earth. When we get revival, hunger for God becomes being satisfied in God. Are you desperate for that? Are you longing for that? God, would you rend the heavens Come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. In the next few verses of that transformative moment we saw for Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, where he saw the Lord. Those next few verses, we see Isaiah model this for us, this idea of, of recognizing my sin, being desperate for God. We see him model this. Look at what happens next. So he says, I saw the Lord. He was high, lifted up, train of his robe filled the temple. I saw these heavenly creatures just calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I was there when the threshold and the foundation shook. And out of that, here's what he said. And I said in verse five, woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say I am ruined. Woe is me. I'm lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. How does he know that? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I got held up to the purity of God, and that's when I saw who I was. I want you to see what happens next. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for it. You want to know what the gospel is? I am a sinner in need of a Savior. But because of Jesus and the cross... Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, so what happens next? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. You see it? There's this, Isaiah has this moment of recognition I saw the Lord, woe is me, I'm ruined. I've been held up against the purity of the holiness of God and I am ruined. The recognition that leads to desperation. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips because I've seen the Lord. That leads for, that allows a visitation. There's a recognition that leads to a desperation that allows a holy visitation. God came down to Isaiah. Again, revival is never you working your way up. It is always God coming down to you. God touched his lips. God purified his life. He didn't say, Isaiah, grab that coal and cleanse yourself. Fix yourself, man. Get it together. Isaiah, do better. Try harder. God initiated grace to him. That's God. 
That's his way. That's Jesus. If you feel like no one knows how to show you grace and you feel like everything around you is hard, hear me say this. God initiates grace to you. He asks nothing of you except this, receive. Receive. Yes, Lord, I need grace. God initiates grace to you. It's a recognition that leads to a desperation. That allows for a holy visitation. Ready? That results in his transformation. Who will I send? Here am I. This man went from I am ruined to send me. What happened? Revival happened. Revival happened. This is what we need. We need to ask Jesus to give us this recognition of the absence of the presence and power of God. That recognition needs to stir a desperation in us for his presence and power to return, allowing for that visitation for him to come down, resulting in our transformation. I wonder what would happen if a few people just began to pray like that. <laughs> just a few of us begin to go, I'll be, I'll I'll deal with whatever sin I have in my life to be desperate like that and to see God move in us, in this generation, right now for his glory. I'll do that. Listen, re revival typically begins with a few people who come to that recognition and that desperation of crying out for God to move. And that heart of the few leads to revival among the many. I wonder who will be that with, with me. There's a story that I want to share with you about D.L. Moody. Uh, we're just about done. D.L. Moody led a, the greatest revival in the history of the nation of England in the late 1800s. But it didn't start out as a revival. It started out with D.L. Moody being very frustrated about the spiritual condition of the church. I want you to hear this story. I want you to hear the power of a few who began to pray for God to do something. Listen to this. While vacationing in England, D.L. Moody visited a London church that was spiritually dead. The pastor recognized him. He was a famous preacher. And he asked him to preach at the morning service. Well, reluctantly, Moody agreed. Afterward, he told a friend the congregation was so unresponsive, it was all he could do to finish his sermon. Later, he remembered he had committed to preach there again that night. And wishing he had never interrupted his vacation plans, he spent the afternoon dreading what was ahead. But behind the scenes, something was happening that Moody knew nothing about. After the morning service, an elderly lady met with her older, older sister for lunch and told her about Moody's upcoming visit. Her sister's eyes lit up and she exclaimed, I have been praying that God would send Moody to England. Put away your lunch, sister. We will spend the afternoon fasting and praying for tonight's service. When Moody took the pulpit that night, an electric sense of God's presence filled the sanctuary. He preached like a man on fire, and when he issued an invitation for people to follow Christ, 500 people responded. Thinking that they had misunderstood, Moody had them sit down. He, he had them all sit down while he re-explained the gospel. <laughs> when he issued a second invitation, the same 500 stood up to receive Christ. That Sunday initiated one of the greatest revivals ever to sweep England. What helped make it happen? 
two elderly sisters who understood that their church desperately needed the fire of God to fall. They believed God's promise. When a believing person prays, great things happen. Will you believe that? Will you be that person? Will you pray for those great things? Here's how we're going to end this morning. If you have never come to the place where you have been able to say, there's no other name like the name of Jesus, and you know that because that name is your hope and salvation, and you've been born again, been made new. In just a moment, we're going to stand. And if you need new life, you need new life, transformation. You step out, come grab one of our ministers or pastors by the hand and go, I need to make Jesus the Lord of my life. For the rest of us, this morning is about a recognition of the spiritual devastation so that there can be an awakening of a desperation for God's power and presence. Not one of us is exempt from the need of God to move in power. You are not exempt from that. You need it. We need to pray for that. So whatever that looks like for you, it may be coming to pray at the altar. It may be staying in your seat, not standing at all. It may be getting on your knees. But let's pray for the recognition of sin that leads to the desperation, that allows for the holy visitation that gives us the transformation. Father, for the next few moments, I just pray your spirit would move in power. Pour out among us. Pour out among us. In Jesus' name.